Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Spectrum Internet has enough speed to handle all your needs. So you can work, game, and stream with speeds up to a gig. Plus, Spectrum's advanced Wi-Fi provides enhanced security for all your connected devices. Get Spectrum Internet with fast and reliable speeds, starting at just $29.99 a month with a two-year price guarantee. Visit spectrum.com slash internet for you for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Restrictions apply. What's up, Open for a Globe? This is Ben Galver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line, as always, by Michael the Pod Pina, who's writing everywhere on the internet covering these NBA playoffs, including 538 and GQ. Michael, we are coming in hot off an incredible game six between the Boston Celtics and the Toronto Raptors. I would call it the greatest game of the bubble so far, you know, full stop, no uh, no exceptions whatsoever. It was the most entertaining. It was the highest stakes. It absolutely felt like a real playoff game, even though there weren't that many people in the stands. Michael, I was so excited during the end game that I was actually physically moving from one media section to the other in hopes of capturing the ultimate game-winning shot or the game-winning moment. I was going back and forth like sort of offense-defense substitutions of myself watching the final moments of that game. That's how uh, you know tight it was down the stretch of the two overtime periods. I believe I could hear you sobbing on the other end of this phone call after Boston's, you know, atrocious <laughs> loss there. Not exactly what we expected from uh, Boston after their big commanding Game 5 win. Um, walk me through your range of emotions on a scale of, you know, 10 to 10. How heartbroken are you? I imagine a 10. And how panicky are you right now heading into Game 7 that maybe Toronto is going to big brother uh, Boston after all? Yeah, so basically what you're telling me is that you distracted the Celtics. You were walking up and down the sidelines, just like oh, Nick Nurse on that yeah. last play, where uh, he's he's crouched in the corner, just confusing Jason Tatum. Just I don't want to use the C word and say that he's a cheater, but... Um, oh. <laughs> no, well, let no, me let me just say far. this, Michael. Let me just say this. Uh, Nick Nurse and I are running a great one-two man game. You'll remember Nick mm-hmm. Nurse pulling out all the stops, trying to push Pascal Siakam's buttons after Game Five, and I personally pulled out all the stops 
deciding to give Boston credit as a championship-worthy team for the first time since the last time they actually won a title. I've been dismissing these guys for more than a decade. I finally turned the corner earlier this week to say, oh yeah, okay, they've got all the pieces. The only thing they don't have is, you know, the rings are already won, that experience, but they put the rest of the package together. And what do you know, just a monumental loss immediately in response. I think between Nurse and I, we successfully jinxed the Celtics and possibly ruined your life. This could go down as one of my greatest podcasting accomplishments in history. Again, you know, I'm not getting too cocky here. There's still one more game to play. Obviously, both teams have to be ready for Game 7, Michael, but I'm glad that you're back on your heels a little bit and sweating. You're a despicable person. I just want to get that on the record. Um, now, I mean, it was it was truly the best game uh, of the bubble so far. I don't think there's anything that touches it. I mean, could have gone either way. There was some uh, ridiculous shots by both sides, ridiculous defensive plays by both sides, uh, controversial calls. It had it had it all. It was a great game. I am to answer your question. Ten out of ten heartbroken um but Mm. i am also feeling pretty confident uh heading into game seven i just think like when you play that many minutes um if you're kyle lowry who had that was maybe the i don't want to say that was the best game of his career because uh game six of last year's finals was pretty tremendous but like kyle lowry playing 54 minutes fred van fee playing 50 minutes uh Pascal Siakam playing 54 minutes uh they had you know the Celtics played a ton of minutes too and rode their guys but like I don't know Kyle Lowry's not young so I'm I'm feeling confident about game seven still no back in my early writing days Michael I was running a a four Taurus 1996 four Taurus into the ground and I kept getting uh toe chucks involved because it was dying on me you know moment after moment and at some point the guy was like you know it would probably be just smarter and cheaper for you to get a new car and you know I think that's sort of the stage that the Raptors are at they're at that last gas 96 Ford Taurus can this thing hold up for one more game and kind of outlast a really good Boston team to me I think that could be the deciding factor in game seven because uh, the Raptors had to ramp up their guys minutes earlier in this series and to Mm -hmm. higher levels than Boston did right I mean pretty much starting from game three Lowry started playing just massive amounts of minutes he is such a character you know he had the uh the picture of his stitches you know from taking the elbow to his face that he was proudly showing off uh to us in the post-game press conference last night I mean Mm -hmm. he's just swearing up a storm like always it was vintage Kyle Lowry we got a bunch of emails from people is he a hall of famer is he a hall of famer that sounded crazy to me before last year's finals. Any kind of talk like that, I think he's there now. I don't know where where you stand no on question. the. Yeah, no, no question, no question. I mean, and, I, I what, once you win the title and you have the performance that he just uh, that he did in that series, um, I mean, it was kind of just like a capstone on a very impressive career. One of the most underrated players in the NBA to this day. I mean, if you go on Basketball Reference and you look at the top ten. Uh, MVP candidates for the 2019-20 season he's like eight or nine I think which is just like it's he's remarkable he's their best player in my opinion their most consistent player even when he's not shooting the ball well he impacts the game in so many different ways we're gonna go through this game and I have a million different possessions in my mind that Kyle Lowry just kept me up 
last night. Um, so yeah, no, he's a definite Hall of Famer in my opinion. And I was going to say, I think the strongest argument now in favor of his Hall of Fame candidacy, it's like the visceral factor. Like everybody has a Kyle Lowry take, right? You might hate him because of all the little tricks, but I think especially over the last 18 months, you've come to respect all those little plays that he's making, but he's still scoring you know, a lot. He's still orchestrating the offense. He's doing basically everything. There's no way to avoid him. I mean, the Kyle Lowry experience is sort of like an all-encompassing uh, you know, overwhelming kind of sensation here of these last couple of playoffs. And so I just think by the time he retires, people are going to look back and be like, oh man, Lowry in 2019, Lowry in 2020. And even if he had, uh, you know, a, a lot of struggles earlier in his career, frankly, with scoring efficiency and trying to get where he wanted to go on the court and everything else, I think that stuff's going to fade by the wayside. People are just going to rem- remember him as sort of like this quintessential figure for the Raptors, uh, somebody who was, you know, kind of polarizing, I guess, in a good way. And then obviously a great leader too. And I think that's more than enough to get him in. So you mentioned um, maybe some of the research or, or going back to to watch aspects of this late game situation. I think, you know, kind of big picture first, kind of easy softball question. Did Toronto deserve to win this game or did both teams deserve to win this game or did Boston just like inexplicably blow it? It was so frantic there at the end. There were so many different situations where like, you know, one call or one shot goes the other direction. It ends at a different point. There was some brain farts that certainly I think kind of uh, came back to, to bite Boston a little bit, but did the right team win here, Michael? Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to say, you know, it's funny, actually, like, if you look at the points per possession numbers, I mean, uh, like 99 times out of 99.9 times out of 100, the team that wins that margin wins the game, because that's how math it works. But if you look at this game, the Celtics actually uh, had a point, they were plus 0.3 points. <clears throat> per possession uh, in this game, and they lost. So that's just like a weird thing that oh, kind of shows perfect. how much of a coin flip this was. Can, can um, we can we hang that banner if they lose here and don't make the conference finals? <laughs> can we hang? That sounds like a very Daryl Morey type thing to do. Let's hang a banner for our uh, our math victory, even though it didn't uh, quite pan out on the scoreboard. That's hilarious. I didn't know that. Uh, fascinating little fact. It's a reminder of how close this game was. I'm curious, was the deciding factor Nick Nurse's decision to go small I mean we talked about the heavy minutes that both teams you know main groups played especially down the stretch I mean there really was no major substituting going on late in the fourth quarter in overtime and Nick Nurse kind of threw a curveball to everyone he played a lineup that he's only played for nine minutes during the regular season and had Lowry Fred Van Vliet uh, Pascal Siakam Norman Powell, uh, who is usually a bench player, and then OG Ananobi. He takes Anunobi, who's a six foot seven wing, puts him as his center against Daniel Tice in the middle. So he's obviously uh, a little bit outclassed from a height perspective, but he's hanging in there toughness wise as best he can. You know, down the stretch, there's some clear trade offs for Toronto. I mean, Tice is going on this dunk parade, this layup parade throughout mm-hmm. overtimes. They're, they're doing a great job of getting lobs to him and, and kind of punishing Toronto for its lack of. Uh, you know, rim protection and big men. And yet the the trade-offs for Toronto wind up being, well, you've got a number of turnovers forced on the perimeter because your defense is is pretty locked in and super versatile. And then on the other end, you've got Norman Powell really stepping up, especially in the second overtime period to kind of bring that win home. I think if we look back in hindsight, 
I mean, first of all, we could say Coach Bud would never in a million years have figured this one out. I mean, he never would have cracked this code. <laughs> you know, I, I I love that you just found a way to dig at poor Coach Bud when we're talking about hey. a game between the Raptors and the Celtics. I mean, we did that whole exercise where what happens if we switch coaches between Spo and Bud, right? And, and we, we talk about, okay, well, what does Milwaukee look like? What does Miami look like in those situations? Yet again, you know, you see, and look, I mean, did Nurse pull a rabbit out of his hat? That's a that's a legitimate counter argument to say he got a little bit lucky. It's not like they won. This wasn't a death lineup situation where they're winning those minutes like fifty to fifteen, and all of a sudden he's the smartest coach ever. I mean, I think it was like thir- it was like thirty-seven, thirty-three down the stretch, right? No, but it and- it did work. I mean, ultimately, we got to give him credit for it working, right? It worked, but I also just think that that was like I don't want to call it a no-brainer at all. But like, what do you what what are the other options here? Like, Serge Ibaka, who I don't think on that ankle he's going to be playing humongous minutes in this game and being productive, and he is somewhat of a liability on the defensive end uh, in certain spots. And then you have well, Marcus well, All, who slow, slow down real quick on that one. Sure. So. Sure. Ibaka has been playing those minutes previously, right? And you go back all season long, it's either Ibaka or Gasol's in pretty much every one of their lineups. And I think usually they they kind of prefer uh, Ibaka. The way I look at it is Gasol is like the XL option. Ibaka is the L option, right? And then now OG Anobi is like the medium option, right? So they've usually been in that L option with Ibaka. This is a player who's been multiple all-defensive teams. He's a veteran. He's a champion. He's respected. He's got a longer track record than our buddy Russell Westbrook in Houston, right? And we've talked about how difficult it is for a coach like D'Antoni to take Russell Westbrook off the court in those crunch time moments. And here's Nick Nurse looking at not only Ibaka, but also a former defensive player of the year guy in Marcus Gasol and saying, look, our season is on the line. I have an idea here. Let's play a 23-year-old forward from London as our center. What do you think? That's not a small decision. I'm with you. He was backed into a corner a little bit, and the injury did uh-huh. make it slightly easier. But you know what I'm getting at from the um, the ego and the experience and then just like doing right by your players? like Those kind of arguments, that's not how Nick Nurse was really approaching this one. I think it stands in contrast to D'Antoni as well. Yeah, I think that – yeah, that's fair. I mean, I think politically it's a lot more palatable to pull Serge Ibaka than Russell Westbrook, who's making $700 million over the next 10 years on his current contract, and you're kind of stuck with that. Agree, but Um, should it be? I mean, come on. Should we just be making the right basketball calls here rather than worrying about guys' contracts? I know this is like, you know, dream fantasy land over here, um, but uh, I just think if, you know, if the Rockets treated Westbrook like uh, Nurse treated Ibaka, they might be in a better spot right now. Maybe, maybe, maybe. I, I, I think at the end of the day that going small in that spot was like just, again, I don't think it was like a, a no-brainer. It didn't stun me at all when I was watching the game. I was like, oh, they're playing Pascal at the five or OG Anobi at the five, and this is what they're going to do. They have shooting at all five positions. Um, they are even more versatile. They can do more things defensively. Uh, they, uh, you know, Kemba did not have a great shooting performance, but he was still kind of just getting where he wanted on the floor. So that was a little, made things a little bit easier um, for them trying to slow him down. So you kind of just add that all that up. And then obviously the results with Norm Powell hitting, uh, I guess he made probably the three biggest 
shots, arguably, of uh, the, down the stretch. I mean, Lowry obviously had the, the nail in the coffin with the, the fall away with 11 seconds left. And then OG and Anobi hit that monstrous three-pointer from the top of the key. But Norm Powell was huge, hit that corner three, hit the... Uh, uh, the wing three, and then he obviously had the and one where he stripped Jason Tatum um, to put uh, to put Toronto up four, I think, in that double overtime. But yeah, so like, I I think you kind of like you look at the results and you're you're like this was a genius move, but I think it was the right one regardless of the outcome of the game. And Nick Nurse, I mean, luck goes into all of this, right? Like Nick Nurse is lucky that Norm Powell hit both of those threes because if he didn't, the game was kind of tilting in Boston's direction finally where they were in position on before both of those shots to go up uh, two possession, make it a two possession game. And a two possession game in a game like that just felt like a four touchdown lead. And so those were humongous shots and he had him in the game for a reason, I guess. Yeah. And look, if he doesn't come through and step up, people are going to be questioning why did he get the final shot, you know, uh, against the buzzer? You know, he, he I'm still of- questioning that for the record. Uh, that was a weird one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Nur- one. Nurse's explanation on that was he just liked the. He thought that Powell had the ability to rise up and get a pretty clean jumper. He didn't want to do anything that could lead to a turnover on that possession. And he thought that there would be a more favorable matchup between Powell and who, whoever was guarding him compared to, I guess, Lowry or whoever else might have been trying to go for an isolation shot. So that was his reasoning. It did feel very strange in the moment. And then it was like fully justified, uh, you know, like a few minutes later. So it's hilarious to see the the Twitter second guessers have to kind of like, you know, retract their criticisms as uh, Norman Powell can't miss in the second overtime. Uh, very fun game from the, uh, you know, from the Toronto perspective. But let's dig into the unfun side of this game from the mm-hmm. uh, Boston Celtics perspective. Now, Michael... The eye test told me that Jason Tatum had a couple of a uh, couple of regrettable decisions there down the stretch. The box score told me he had six turnovers, and I know that there is also Kemba Walker looming here as a possible scapegoat because he basically did absolutely nothing all night, as far as I could tell. I mean, he played a lot of minutes, but uh, didn't. Oh my god! Okay, didn't, continue. Didn't do a ton out there. <laughs> um, so I guess first of all, I'm curious when you're looking back on this, do you pin this loss on anyone in particular? Um, did Brad get out foxed? Should he have gone even smaller when OG's at the center and maybe he brings in I don't know Brad Wanamaker for Tice or something like that? Or should um, <laughs> should uh, you know sh- should Tatum? have done something different, approach that end game a little bit different? Did they just simply run out of gas? What was going on with Kemba? Please give me the debrief. Like, what the heck happened here from Boston's side? I mean, I thought Boston played, like, pretty well, all things considered. And obviously Kemba did not shoot the ball well. I thought he was fouled at the end of regulation pretty clearly and should have gone to the free throw line. But, you know, calls go, I think it all evens out at the end of the day, especially in a double overtime game like that. Um, And Kemba also had an opportunity late, I think it was in the first overtime or maybe it was the fourth quarter where he just missed this floater after he burned Pascal Siakam off the bounce that, I mean, he short-armed it in a way that he usually doesn't. Like, that's kind of his sweet spot. So he had a rough shooting night, I think, as a playmaker. As I was saying before, like, he, you know, he set up Tice over and over again down the stretch. And, I mean, they boxed and won 
uh, put a box and one on Kemba, which is just like the ultimate sign of respect, basically from the start of the game. And that was a huge factor in his poor statistical output. Um, I think, you know, I went back because you sent me that you emailed me the outline last night and you asked me to be prepared to be Jason Tatum's defense attorney. So, well, I'm just saying, I mean, it was kind of meltdown city there a little bit. I mean, I don't want to dig in too deep here, but it was, it was not necessarily like, uh, you know, an in your prime Kawhi Leonard bringing that victory home. (laughs) And and actually two real quick points on Kemba before we move on, uh, before you can, you know, defend your, your favorite, uh, player's honor. Uh, mm-hmm. Sam Amick of The Athletic had a nice note where after that uh, non-call on the foul, Kemba went over to Monty McCutcheon and was you know screaming for help. You know, Monty's always sitting there courtside. So that's actually a Chris Paul vet move here in the bubble to take your complaint to the manager. And, and Kemba got in on that as well. It didn't help him necessarily, uh, but that's how frustrated he was with no call there. And then also Nurse basically attributed his entire decision to go small late in the game to his desire to better defend Kemba Walker. He said basically their big guys were struggling a little bit too much to both Mm -hmm. take away Walker's jumpers, but then also kind of recover once he tries to, you know, scoot to the basket and and break down the defense off the dribble. So um, as I'm kind of mocking, you know, Kemba's stat line, and you're doing a nice job of defending his honor, as I assumed you would, um, we should point (laughs) out that, you know, he was commanding basically all of Toronto's respect by kind of forcing them towards that lineup, something that they had not done essentially all season long. So that's the sign of a star in theory, uh, even if not in practice. All right, Michael, tell us what happened to Jason Tatum late. I mean, Tatum was, I went back and I watched the whole fourth quarter. I watched both overtimes. I did not see anything that was particularly glaring in terms of a need to criticize this person or 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 posit him as a scapegoat. I mean, I have three beefs. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna start off as the uh, okay. No, the, you go the, ahead. The go prosecution ahead. and and you can take over as the defense. Number one beef he threw to um you know he threw to Nick Nurse and then they're trying to whine and blame that on Nick Nurse. I mean, come on, Nick Nurse does not look like any of the players on the Celtics. He probably looks the most oh. like <laughs> Tice, but he doesn't look that much like Tice. Careless turnover. He's got to own that one. You can't be calling out, uh, oh, you know, whatever Jalen said about, oh, is is Toronto's, uh, you know, coaching staff getting a little bit too emotional or competitive or whatever he said. I mean, come on. That's weak sauce. That's number one. Number two, there was a situation late. I'm not sure which overtime period the ball swung to Tatum, top of the key. He was pretty wide open, or at least I thought he had a clean shooting look for a three right at the top, and he just passed up and didn't take the shot. I wanted him to take that shot. It felt like that was kind of a moment for for him to potentially be a hero. Split-second decision. I'm not really that mad about it, but I did think that that was a moment where if it was Marcus Smart in the same situation, he's taking the shot, right? Um, number three, Beef, what the heck happened with five seconds left on the clock? Okay, they had no timeouts. They lost, to me, they lost entirely. Um, control of the time score situation. Kemba Walker is standing in front of Jason Tatum, clapping his hands, just asking for the ball so he can run it up the court and go get a shot. Instead, Tatum throws a, a pretty accurate long distance pass to Smart. Smart also loses track of time score and launches this crazy turnaround three pointer that's contested with five seconds left rather than trying to get himself a better shot. 
they just straight panicked, bro. They were not ready for that moment. Um, and I, I put a lot of it on Tatum as because he was the inbounder and because the obvious option to just inbound to Kemba was staring right in front of him wide open. It, it wasn't like he was even being guarded at that point. Those are my major beefs with Tatum. All right, go ahead. I, I, I have absolutely uh, no clue what you're talking about on that last play. I thought that that was a fine Quarter, quarter length of the court, three quarters of length of the court pass to Marcus Smart. With five um, seconds left, all you're going to get is a contested 30-foot turnaround when you could have Kemba run the court, the, the ball up the court in three well, so, seconds and get you a good look? I mean, come well, on. Also, I, I, I rewatched this play multiple times because it gave me an aneurysm. And Marcus Smart catches the ball. Tatum's, I mean, uh, Kemba sprints up the floor, and he's wide open behind the arc, and he's screaming for the ball. And so I kind of put it more on Marcus taking that shot. And I know it's like five seconds left. I can't even imagine with everything that's going on, how chaotic it is going on in his brain Um, and trying to, to, you know, you don't want the clock to run out without a shot. That's like the worst case scenario. And that's the number one thing that everyone on the floor is trying to prevent. But at the same time, Kemba was wide open, and if you know, if Marcus saw him and was looking to pass, uh, and I, I also just like don't know how much of this was scripted because it's not a coincidence necessarily that Marcus Smart was wide open with only one defender back there. Um, that's that a better tough not crit- have been the- scripted because that was a terrible script. I mean, like okay. throw that one in the trash. <laughs> come on, that was like you know worse than the Sopranos ending, right? I mean, come on. All right. If you have All five right. seconds left, you've got to be able to do better than that. And I, I'm sure if they could do it over, they would have either just inbounded to Kemba, or they would have, you know, tried to have like something where you throw ahead to Marcus and he pick, he pitches back to somebody and he kind of walks into a shot, right? Because. Just everything about it from the start of the pass to Smart's shot made it seem like they thought they had 0.5 seconds, right? Like they were really up against the gun as opposed to having five seconds. You can create a lot of good shots in the NBA in five seconds. It does not take these guys very long to sprint up the court and hit a runner. I mean, we've seen LeBron hit, you know, uh, you know, full court, you know, uh, runners off one leg, banking in shots with less than five seconds before in playoff games. I mean, I just think that there was a lack of poise in that moment. I don't think that's me being rude here, Michael. Okay, okay. I think you are being rude. But let me just let me just zoom out and just read Jason Tatum's box score. Box score is not everything, but he finished with 29 points, 9 assists, the 6 turnovers that you mentioned. Uh, I think 3 of them were on offensive fouls, um, which, you know, whatever. Uh, 14 rebounds, uh, 4 for 8 behind the 3-point line. He hit uh, with the Celtics were down four with 33 seconds left. They drop a play for Tatum. He goes right at Kyle Lowry, hits a tough floater. Uh, A couple possessions later, uh, he hits a 28-foot three-pointer to cut it to the lead to one with six seconds to go. So, I mean, like, if you're just looking at how he performed as a scorer down the stretch when it really mattered, I thought he was pretty terrific. I think throughout... Both overtimes uh, throughout the fourth quarter, they were trying to, uh, you know, he was, it was either Kemba, they were basically running a Kemba, Tatum, uh, high screen and roll to try to get a mismatch either for Kemba or for Tatum, just on basically every, that's how they initiated every offensive possession at the end of the game in both of the overtimes. And I thought that whenever Tatum had uh, a situation where he was isolated on either Van Vliet or Lowry at the top of the key in a spot where it's really difficult to double, um, 
I mean, the Toronto Raptors, you got to give them credit because they had everybody in the paint in these situations. There was no way Tatum was driving. His options here were basically to take a tough, contested, fall-away, mid-range shot, not one you really want. And he's he's not really in a position also to take those, you know, he loves like the one dribble fall-away or the sidestep uh, jumper, and it's really difficult to take those with a young, with a, a small guard like Lowry or Van Vliet on him. Those guys are just picking everybody's pocket left and right. So in these spots, like he read the defense, he made great passes. He he assisted uh, uh, two Marcus Smart corner threes. Uh, he found Jalen Brown, I think, for three corner threes. Two of them wide open. Jalen hit ended up hitting one of them. And I just thought he was like super poised in just about every spot, except I think it, I don't know if it's the same position you mentioned earlier where he passed up the open three, but there was a, a spot where the ball got swung to him and he just was not shot ready in the second, I think it was the second overtime. Uh, yeah, second overtime, uh, like 40 seconds to go or something like that. Marcus Smart, Smart, Marcus Smart swings the ball to him. He's not shot ready. Uh, stares at the rim and tries to drive the closeout. Norm Powell picks his pocket, goes the other way, and one. And that was basically the ball game right there that put the, the, the Raptors up four. Yeah, that's um, that's the that's definitely a situation where I'm not sure we're using the word poised, Michael. I mean, come on. That's pretty, ju- that's pretty rough. <laughs> Guy makes one mistake. I mean... I said this before, perfect is the enemy of very good. Perfect is the enemy of very good. I thought he was a fine, fine player in this game. Um, And he was defensively uh, great, I think, in spots. I mean, he was not a liability at all. He uh, had that one chase down uh, block on, I think it was Norm Powell, if I'm not mistaken, that was pretty impressive. I mean, all over the glass. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I can't really fault Tatum here um it's not like he was shying away from the moment it was I give I give more credit to Toronto's defense and just the way that they strategically tried to limit Tatum and limit Kemba and force everybody else to beat them I think that we've got arguably a hung jury here I'm not sure you convinced me necessarily (laughs) but you did you did a very valiant job in, in your Tatum defense I mean a couple thoughts first of all um the standard right now for him is super duper high because he's the he's been so good that he's built the expectations up right so if this was the same Tatum that we were talking about during last year's playoffs um you know at that stage of his career I think that he wouldn't be facing the same level of microscope on these you know flash moments you know these split second decisions whether it's do I shoot do I drive um you know do I kick to the corner and and it winds up being a, a guy who plays guitar and not one of my teammates who actually gets the ball um you know do I panic on the inbounds and just kind of lose my mind for a split second I think those kinds of things would be swept under the rug he's made a leap this year and I think that uh, expectations have leaped along with him I think it sets him up for game seven I mean it's not like this is some like you know, crucible of, uh, you know, his reputation. He's going to be a bum if they don't get it done. But I do think um, it's a really interesting test moment for him. Like, you know, Brad Stevens talked so much in game five about the competitive character of the Celtics and how they responded after, you know, Kyle Lowry's game four performance and after OG shot in game three. 
I mean, here is another even bigger test for those young guys, and we'll see if they're ready for it. Um, you know, like I said earlier, I think the minutes thing, the lack of you know the super fatigue will definitely play to Boston's benefit. I thought they came out really strong as a team in Game Six, and that's a strong sign too. You know, you're going to get the Raptors' best punch in that moment, and to still kind of dictate the terms of that game early um, is a positive sign uh, for the Celtics, but. To me, he just wasn't good enough late. It wasn't a disaster. I'm not giving him an F. I'm not flunking him. I just think like if he's going to look back, he's going to have some serious regrets from that endgame sequence. And uh, I suspect his lawyer would too, frankly, to be honest. Uh, you know, if, if they wind up losing this series, don't you think you're going to look back at some of those overtimes in game six and be like, man, if just this had gone the other way, if he had just done this, this would be a whole different story. Absolutely not. No, I can't. I can't go over there with you. I, I'm. I. You know. I love how you uh, just stick to the inbound pass with five seconds to go in a three-point game. Uh, the play where Nick Nurse was blatantly cheating, and that's basically it for you. I mean, you're you're overlooking the box score, uh, the twenty-nine points, which is that's what you want from an all-star player, right? No, I mean score. No, 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 because it's, it's 29 points, dot, 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 in a losing effort. That's not what you want from an all-star. So, 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 okay, so, 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 okay, so if they win that game, which, uh, uh, like, the this was the ultimate coin flip game, and, like, Kyle Lowry was throwing up some junk in that game, and uh, OG Ananobi has Kyle been Kyle Lowry was a lot He's, better he, than he, Jason Tatum in this game. I'm sorry. I'm not saying that Kyle Lowry was not as good. I'm just saying that he was throwing up some junk, and a couple of those shots are highly inefficient for anyone, including him, and they just happen to go in. Um, and so, I mean, like, I can't just judge someone on a coin flip game whether or not their team won or lost when I thought that they played pretty well. I mean, the one time that Tatum was like, you know what, I am – Screw this defense. I am putting my head down. I'm getting a step on Pascal Siakam. I'm going right at the basket. The one time he really did that in both overtimes, he uh, drew like every defender into the paint as was expected. And he tried to find Tice on a drop pass and basically, uh, yeah, did not connect with Tice and turn the ball over and it went the other way. And I think Lowry hit like a three. So like he, you know, it's like he made one mistake in that spot and it's just like i don't know there's there's some growing pains here i thought he played i'm not gonna say he played tremendous i think he played a pretty damn good basketball game though i think you did a pretty darn good job defending him that to me i was just kind of honestly just wanted to torture you a little bit it felt so good to hear you squirm and have to defend tatum (laughs) and how personal it got I just you know Mm -hmm. after a really tough week for Giannis and the Milwaukee Bucks and being back on the defensive it was so nice to hear someone else you know feel my pain in in a slightly different way there's no distance too far for the perfect trip hi checking in for or the perfect table hey where are you coming and when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card hey this looks amazing I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. This Father's Day, shop at the Home Depot to find the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. 
because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. He's the weed-fighting, hedge-trimming, leaf-blowing lord of the lawn. He sees the job, and he gets it done. Because your dad is a doer. So show him you appreciate everything he does with the tools he needs to power up his landscaping game. This Father's Day, give him the convenience and gas-like power of innovative and durable Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from The Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad does, everything he is, and everything he can be, find the perfect Father's Day gift at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Oh, that's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I know, right? I was worried we'd bring back the same team. Oh, no, I meant those blackout motorized shades. MVP of the room. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. Even you could do it. Nice. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. What, you fly across the country to do the install? Nope. Blinds.com can do it all. All she had to do was pick what she wanted. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Look at you, Hall of Fame son. Oh, I just picked the winning team. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Oh, Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. He shoots. He scores. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go right now for up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hey, Michael, we got a, a lot of questions from the Open Floor Globe this week. They emailed us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. And I wanted to start with Usman because he makes a good point. He says, longtime listener, Miami uh, Heat fan here. I listened to your latest podcast going over this series, and I am utterly and thoroughly disappointed, just like me and Jason Tatum, by the way. You guys spent 30 minutes talking about the series, and 25 minutes were spent talking about the Bucks and what they did wrong and not giving Eric Spolstra and his guys a lick of credit. Then you spent the next five minutes giving backhanded compliments and roasting Miami's chances going forward, which, by the way, I agree with. They don't look great, but that's beside the point. The worst part is it seemed Ben, who was framing these questions, you were self-aware and you knew what you were doing the whole time. You even called that heat question a charity question, and then you said, why do we treat the Heat this way? Um, we need to have a better conversation about the Miami Heat. Usman, look, I hear you loud and clear. Remember sometimes my my, uh, my tongue's in my cheek when I make those kinds of comments. We were obviously um, you know, dealing with the headline news, which is the Bucks implosion. I think that we, we handled that one properly, in my opinion. Um, you know, it's talking at length about what went wrong, what the implications could be for Milwaukee. I mean, to me, that is the headline story. But Usman's got a great point, too, which is the Miami Heat, this team that we really haven't heard from since LeBron left in a big-time way on the postseason stage, are mm-hmm. back in the Eastern Conference Finals. They're going to be resting for darn near a week before they get either Boston or hopefully Toronto in the Eastern Conference Finals. 
And they're in a situation where they're going deep into their rotation. They've got a lot of guys who are contributing, shooting the basketball well. They've got Jimmy Butler, who outplayed Giannis head-to-head in the second-round series. They're coming off a situation where they swept the Indiana Pacers, you know, a team that had a pretty similar regular season record to them. So that's utter domination in the first round. And things are rolling. The vibes are really good. I think, you know, Pitbull and Rick Ross have to be very proud of this group. No questions about it. So let's uh, dig into uh, you know a couple of these questions maybe for Usman's benefit and also for the entire 305. I want to know, Michael, what would you view as Miami's biggest advantage in the Eastern Conference Finals? Um, you know whether it's Boston, uh, you know, or Toronto. Like, what do you feel like is their sort of signature strength that they might have in one of those matchups? I just think, like, I put myself in the the position of Nick Nurse or Brad Stevens, and I just think Miami's greatest advantage is that it's so difficult to game plan to stop their offense. There's just so many different options, um, so many different variations that they go to, so many different players who they can lean on. And so, like, when you have such a limited amount of time to put together a game plan and to scout like it's impossible to cover everything it's so much different than the bucks or um the lakers and or or the rockets like you kind of just like know what those teams are going to do on offense on any given night whereas miami is just so broad with how they want to attack you and You've got Jimmy pick and rolls. You've got Goran Dragic just ramming the ball down your throat in transition. You've got Tyler Hero coming out of nowhere who has just like perma green light and he's hitting everything. Um, you got shooters just like at all times, everybody on the floor basically can shoot um, except Bam Adebayo who uh, might be their best or most important, their most important players. Um, and just the way that he can just draw opposing bigs out without a jump shot like in the similar vein to Draymond Green running those DHOs from up top like you kind of if you're a big you have to be up there to help because if he runs a dribble handoff with Duncan Robinson and there's only one defender there that's going to be a wide open three for one of the best three-point shooters who's basically ever lived Um, so they're just tough man They, they have so many different ways they can beat you they have a great 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 head coach and that's what I would be worried about the most. Like, I don't know what to, to hone in on when I'm trying to slow them down. So even Usman admitted that, um, you know, this joyride that the Miami Heat are on, which has been amazing. And their offense, as you're mentioning, has been really, really tough to stop. And you're just fi- constantly playing whack-a-mole with those guys because, you know, pretty much every lineup they put out there has at minimum – four scoring threads, right? Or, you know, if it's not individual scoring threads, at least guys who present problems and create space for their teammates. Um, But is any of it fool's gold, I guess is kind of my question. I think there would be some people who say like, I mean, Jay Crowder has had an amazing month, right? Playing some of the most important basketball of his entire career, shooting the lights out. I mean, big three after big three right in front of Milwaukee's bench in game five. I mean, Giannis was about Mm -hmm. to have his eyes roll back into his head after a couple (laughs) of those shots he was hitting. And full credit to Crowder because he was just in the groove. I mean, every time he's shooting, you feel like it's going in. Is there a chance guys like Crowder, Duncan Robinson, Tyler Hero, I mentioned those last two because they're just a little bit less experienced and, you know, typically we expect – you know, guys in their type of role to fade at some point in the playoffs. 
is it possible that they come back to earth and the entire Miami formula looks different? Like if you think if they were going against one of these elite defenses, whether it's Toronto or uh, or Boston, both of whom I think are a little bit better equipped on the wings to defend all those guys than Milwaukee was, is there going to be a situation where if those guys get locked up or taken away, or even if they just come back to earth, now all of a sudden Miami looks pretty mortal? Is, is that a concern you have? It's definitely one I have. Yeah, if their top three three point shooters stop hitting threes, I think they'll be in trouble. Well, I'm not. I'm not saying that they're going to disappear, but you know what I mean. Like the margins here are pretty tight, right? And so, like if For Crowder, sure. if Crowder just comes back to earth slightly, and you know Robinson winds up, you know they just do a better job. Whoever in the Eastern Conference Finals does a better job of just kind of taking him out, right? Um, you know, which we've seen, you know, teams do on um, guys like JJ Redick or whoever else you want to compare, like those, those strict three point shooters can get taken away in a playoff series. It doesn't take a ton to me to kind of just shake up Miami's entire offensive formula, I guess. No, I mean, that's kind of why we're all surprised. I think, uh, that Miami has had this much success. I mean, I, I think Part of it is the matchup advantage that they had against Milwaukee. So maybe surprise isn't the right word, but just the fact that they, as a, uh, what are they, a five seed, I think, four or five seed, um, to get to the conference finals is surprising because they have, uh, you know, their best player is Jimmy Butler. And then from there, they really don't have a, a traditional sidekick scoring option. I mean, like, it's basically Goran Dragic who, He's a game-tilting presence, no doubt, but not really someone who you can consistently rely upon like uh, like a Chris Middleton or I guess like an even more uh, serious example would be like Paul George, someone like that. Um, so they don't have that type of star power and they're built differently. So I get the concern. I think Crowder has, you know, he's shooting 40% from behind the three-point line on eight three-point attempts per game in the playoffs. That's probably unsustainable, you would think. Um, although during the regular season, when he came to Miami, I think his percentage was like 44 on six attempts per game. So like that's a 20 game sample size right there. Um, so he's just been hitting shots and we can look throughout his career and know he's, a, he's an inconsistent and a streaky guy. But like maybe this just continues over the next month or so or maybe he's got something special uh, something he's responding to in the bubble is impacting his ability to hit these shots I don't know um but he's just been waiting your... for a neutral site his entire life this is his moment exactly 100 <laughs> percent um and then like yeah you look at Tyler Hero who's a 20 year old rookie and you know they can fall off at any point and Duncan Robinson to your point like um comparing him to a Kyle Korver or a J.J. Redick, someone who can be game-planned out of a series, I think that that's, that's fair. Um, and, uh, like, when that happens, uh, Eric Spolster just subs him out and subs in Andre Iguodala or uh, any of the other guys off the bench who are pretty capable of impacting the game in different ways. So they're just, a, they're just like a really complimentary, tough team, I think. But I see your point with... The fact that they just don't have the traditional star power. Yeah, and so um, I also have a, some concerns actually about Jimmy Butler, to be honest, too, because I think he got a lot of attention for his big moments against Milwaukee and fully deserved. I mean, he was absolutely sensational late in game one. 
and I think it was late in game three that he closed out as well, right? Um, with the big push. And I think actually, you know, he getting fouled on the last play of game two. I mean, his fingerprints are all over that. As that series wore on, though, his impact was a little bit more hit or miss to me. Um, and I don't know if he was suffering from fatigue. Um, I'm not sure exactly what was going on. He just seemed a little bit more passive than he did earlier in the games. And it just it had me a little bit nervous, I think, on, on behalf of Miami, where uh, you know, as we saw, like they seized control of that series against Milwaukee because of Jimmy. His matchups are going to be pretty tough in the next round, kind of whoever it is, whether it's OG and Pascal or, um, you know, whether it's Tatum and Brown. No, uh, let's, let's just say that it's going to be, uh, it's going to be OG and Pascal. I need some, I need some superstitious. You, you want the reverse jinx? You want the reverse jinx? Yeah. I well, mean, if, look, I, if I say that, then it's not a reverse jinx. So let's just say it's Pascal and uh, OG. Let's just go there. Well, I just think that's a tougher matchup for him <laughs> and, as, and as a smarter coach, too, by the way. I mean, look, there's not going to be a situation where, you know, they're getting into, you know, post game debates about who should be guarding Jimmy. Toronto would know who they want to be guarding Jimmy, and it's not going to be some open for debate like, uh, you know, forum casting call. Hey guys, who do we think Milwaukee should have uh, guarding Jimmy? Like they're going to have a better plan than the Bucks did. So his life is going to be more difficult, I suppose. Um, you know, in some of those moments where he, he was, uh, you know, not quite as impactful late in that series, which just had me a little bit nervous because I do think you need to have him as the central presence of an Eastern Conference Finals if you're going to pull the, uh, if you're going to kind of pull what I believe would be considered an upset over either one of those teams. You know, another major advantage that Miami would have here. And, you know, maybe this is just like talking head, you know, water cooler stuff, but they've got the nobody believes in them card for sure. They've got a massive rest advantage, um, you know, for sure. And then they've got just, you know, um, a very shared identity and a real comfort down here in the bubble as well. I think other than Boston, I'm not sure of any other team in the bubble who's been happier and more content that's still here. Um, than Miami, right? I mean, they've, you know, they've talked about how it's a business trip. Um, you know, they've, they've stayed, you know, very focused and, and steady throughout their postseason run. Even when they got up on, you know, 2-0 on Milwaukee, it wasn't a lot of chest thumping at all, you know, and, and they did have the let up in game four. They definitely should have won that game. But, you know, Jimmy came out and said all the right things about how they sort of took their eye off the ball and, and didn't finish it and let up a little bit after Giannis got injured. And then they took care of business in game five. I'm wondering, do you think some of those, you know, psychological benefits coupled with all this rest, can that be a factor in an Eastern Conference final series where maybe they come out and get game one and or two just because, um, you know, they're they're chomping at the bit and they're well rested after a, another, you know, another team is coming through this long battle? Or is that just, uh, you know, the, the classic rest versus rust talk that winds up not mattering too much? I, I can't ever, like, get to like waste too much of my own mental energy on the rest versus rust debate. Cause like it, it just makes, there's just no, like, we have nothing to go on right here. There's like no data. We like look at the Lakers who had all this time to rest. And then they drop game one after the Houston Rockets are just in this dog fight, seven game series hanging on for their lives. Um, so I think like uh, on one hand, you might be exhausted coming out of the series if you're Boston or Toronto, but on the other, your antennas have been up the whole time. So, like, I can talk myself into either side as being an advantage here. Um, I do think your point about, you know, them having uh, this, I guess, just this really nice bond together um, uh, and collectively treating this with a type of focus that not a lot of organizations or not every team 
uh, will ha- has been kind of treating the bubble. Maybe um, I mean I look at. I guess like we haven't even mentioned the Daniel House situation, but I would be shocked if like the Miami have something like that happening on the Miami Heat. It's probably the last team that I would expect it to happen on just because they are so singularly focused and clearly on top of what they need to accomplish. Um, But but yeah, going back to like rest versus rest, I don't know if that matters at all, really. Yeah, I hear you. Um, we'll get to the house thing in a second. We got a quick question here from Orion. He says, "I always enjoy your guys' takes, and you know, I love listening to the pod." But Eric Spolster would never play Giannis forty-four minutes, and he is saying this in response to our conversation about what happens if you switch the coaches in that series. He says Spolster is only playing Bam thirty-six minutes, and he's using sports science to kind of make those decisions. Uh, why aren't you mentioning that? Why are you criticizing minutes restrictions on Giannis while not identifying his lack of playmaking? So here's the deal, Ryan. When he had a Giannis-like figure named LeBron James uh, you know, during his prime, Spolstra rode that guy 40-plus for multiple series uh, over and over and over again. He let his superstars decide the title pushes um, you know, during those four straight finals runs. And um, I just think that Bam is awesome, all-star level player, played great uh, for long stretches of that second round series, but it's almost a luxury to not have to push him. I think that Miami actually felt like they didn't need to to run up their best players' minutes because they were in control of that series from start to finish. I'm not sure that's necessarily how it's going to play out once you get to the Eastern Conference Finals, as we're seeing you know, both from Boston and Toronto coaches eventually do tighten things up and go to their best players and and lean more heavily on them. And I don't think Miami will be an exception there. But I also think that if Spolster was down 2-0 in a playoff series and he had Giannis, he's 1,000% playing him more than 36 minutes. There's no question. I think every other coach in the league besides Coach Bud would do the same thing. Do you agree, Michael? 100%. The president. Okay, thank you. I thought I was going okay. crazy, or, or I don't know if Orion like gaslit me here or something. But I was like, "Come on, man!" No, I mean, like Pat Riley is the president of the Miami Heat. Do you think that um, if Giannis was there, which you know Giannis may be there uh, sometime soon in a playoff series, playing for that organization, like uh, in, a, in a spot where they're trailing in a series, like he's not caring about. Um, minutes restrictions and to the point about Bam only playing 36 like yeah they won their first seven games of the postseason like they haven't had to 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 put the pedal to the metal yet like the the whole point of us criticizing Bud and Giannis was that they had their backs against the wall and they stuck to the same substitute substitution pattern so that's like the, the whole point here yeah they were standing in the middle of a street the truck was barreling down on them. We were screaming move and he decided not to move. That's why we're mad. It's it's pretty it's pretty straightforward. Hey Michael, we had a lot of other questions about what's Milwaukee's future look like, can they pursue a Chris Paul trade and all that. I want to bump those to next week cuz let's dig in a little bit to this Daniel House situation. Now, uh, Chris Haynes of Yahoo Sports reported here um, I believe Thursday morning that uh, it's possible that House wound up needing to sit Game 3 and his status is kind of questionable for Game 4 because he potentially invited a female testing employee, someone who's administering the coronavirus tests, um, into his hotel room here on campus. Now, the other reporting, I believe, from Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN said that House is, whatever his violation might have been here, did not involve him leaving the bubble, so we can kind of rule that out. 
Um, you know, just in terms of how the health and safety protocols work here on campus, there aren't that many violations that you could have that would result in you being forced to miss time or re-quarantine if you don't leave or if you don't have contact with somebody from the outside world. The whole idea of these rules is basically to limit uh, a direct player contact to people who haven't gone through the same quarantine and bubble process. They are very strict about no guests into hotel rooms, especially no overnight guests, unless they're the pre-approved you know, wives and girlfriends and family members um, that have already gone through the quarantine process. Um, so, and they are very strict about, you know, don't sneak anybody onto campus or, or anything of that nature. So as we wait for more details to emerge here on the Daniel House situation, I think it's just kind of fair framing to be like, it had to be something serious. This is not a case where he's like, you know, walking around, not wearing a mask or, you know, he's, uh, you know, not staying socially distant or something like that. I mean, this has to be kind of a, a direct violation of what are those key core principles about their coronavirus plan because otherwise they wouldn't need to they wouldn't feel the need to investigate and they wouldn't hold him out of game three so i guess uh michael this sort of begs the question i mean you mentioned that this would never happen for a member of the miami heat there's just too much discipline in that in that organization are we surprised at all that this is the type of thing that would strike the houston rockets during the middle mm of a tense playoff series against the LA Lakers. I mean, I hate to pile on here because we just had, a, you know, 20 minutes of Tatum bashing, but does this say something about the uh, the Rockets culture, Michael? I mean, yeah, I don't want to, to like, posit it where just because the Heat are super focused, like the Rockets are not super focused, but it's... It's just like it's, it's not super the most dis- it's not the most shocking thing in the world, I guess. Is what I'm, I'm not saying. I'm not yeah I'm not stunned that this has happened. I guess um, and it's just super disappointing and like I don't know we we still don't know necessarily all the details exactly. Um, and it seems uh, like that he's denying any wrongdoing. So obviously you know he is uh, innocent until proven guilty. And, you know, we should, everybody should kind of, uh, you know, maintain that mentality. I think that's kind of the right way to look at it. I guess the, you know, the situation. But we've got I, games to play. Like the, the right. fact that they're they're doing this investigation, the league is right now, and they're hold, potentially going to hold them out. Uh, they held them out for game three um, and will potentially hold them out for game four. And he is, he's like a huge player for them. This isn't like someone who only logs five minutes off the bench or six minutes off the bench or takes three shots a game like he's a humongous piece for them he's and probably so, their fourth most important player wouldn't you say right now uh he's i mean he's their sixth man and uh like when he's on the floor they can really switch everything and when he's on the floor for westbrook they have literally five guys who can shoot threes and drive and defend basically every position so he's like he's huge and i don't know even know like when we talk with this kind of relates to uh whether or not they'll bench russ right and like daniel house was always the answer to that question where if they do bench russ he's the guy who's going to be on the floor so if he's not available then you go to austin rivers who has not really played very well and has seemingly lost mike d'antoni's trust with just looking at the minutes and how is he's been involved in the rotation do you go to ben mclemore like these guys are uh capable players for sure but they're just not quite as good 
fits uh, against the Lakers, I think. So it's it's like a huge, huge loss. Yeah, and he's been playing pretty well, too. Um, I, I guess what we can say is, you know, innocent until proven guilty, but there was clearly enough evidence that the NBA made the extraordinary decision to take him out of Game 3. You know, knowing the stakes and the possible blowback from a decision like that, they had to feel confident that they, they had him, right? Because otherwise, you're risking just an all-time controversy by influencing a player's availability in a, in a playoff series, especially against the Lakers, right? I mean, the last thing uh, the NBA league office wants to be, have is the perception that they have their, their thumb on the scale on behalf of LeBron in a playoff series by like, you know, taking away players from the, the opposing team. I mean, that's really, really bad optics. So I think in this situation, they must have felt comfortable that, uh, you know, something serious had gone wrong. And from that standpoint, it's probably fair or getting close to fair to say that he let his teammates down. And that's really unfortunate. I mean, I think he made some comments recently that he was one of the most slept on players. I think he even brought pillows into the analogy about how underrated he was. Um, I appreciated his, uh, his um, you know, his attempts at, you know, creative writing and, and speaking. I think he was right. You know, I look past um, Harden, Westbrook, and P.J. Tucker. I feel like he's pretty much one of their most important players, if not the most important guy, uh, you know, you know, after those big three in terms of are they going to be able to win this series? To me, it feels like a very bad omen for Houston, and you never want to write those guys off. I don't think they're necessarily done in this series, but I feel like, you know, this is now fully in the Lakers' control. How are you feeling on your, you know, your Houston Rockets anxiety? And I've been pushing all of your buttons today, but I guess zooming back bigger picture with the Lakers up 2-1 headed into, uh, you know, game four tonight, uh, you know, is, is this something that's got you nervous? Am I nervous? I mean... It's basically a must-win game. Um, I don't really like saying that whenever it's truly not a must-win elimination game, but I think I find you know it... what I have a different take. Every okay. game in life is a must-win game, Michael. This podcast is a must-win game. All right, go out there with the mentality that you're trying to win no matter what, and you'll be so much better served if you just go out there and this is a kind of win game. You're going to be just jogging through life, not getting the most out of yourself. Today is a must-win day. Tomorrow is a must-win day. Now I'm sounding like Chip Kelly saying win the day. But look, every game is a must-win game. Why do we keep score if it's not a must-win game? Uh, point taken, Ben. <laughs> um, I, yeah, every game, every day, every minute, must win. You sound um, so I sick agree. of me right now, Michael. It's unbelievable. <laughs> um, but to get back to your initial question, I think I am a little nervous. I'm not going to lie. Um you know, game three, I thought, I mean, honestly, like in the second half of game two, I was pretty confident after they came, after the Rockets came back and closed that lead. Um, in game three, it was basically a, uh, a toss up game back and forth through three quarters. And then Rondo just kind of came out of nowhere. And so in a playoff series, like, like I, I don't know. Like it, LeBron, can LeBron hit the type of shots that he hit in Game Three again and do all of that? Can they summon? And when I say they, I mean the Lakers. Can they summon some production out of uh, a another role player who I've probably discounted weeks ago um, to come up big as Markeith Morris did earlier in this series? Um, I don't know. Like I, I think it comes back to I'm I just a little, I'm a little like 
I don't know if surprise is the right word, but I thought that Westbrook athletically would have it a little bit more and that they would not play him until he was like at 100 percent. I don't think he's even close to 100 percent, and that is just evident in how he's playing basketball um, and shooting threes and just not trusting his body in a way that he did earlier in the season. So that's kind of the bigger like uh, the more, more thing I'm worried about than even necessarily that the series is 2-1. Just like Westbrook doesn't look right, and I don't know how they win if he doesn't look right. I'm with you, especially if House's uh, availability is compromised. I mean, that's just, you know, it's putting even more and more on Harden, and he's been good but not absolutely spectacular. I mean, I think Houston's best stretch there was that third quarter of Game 3, or like the best stretch, you know, from that game, and they looked absolutely awesome can they sustain that i think is an open question um and i will get some answers tonight you know denver last night just kind of died on the vine to me you know that kind of felt like a a back-breaking loss for them to go down 3-1 now the clippers weren't celebrating like they had won the series yet but clearly they're in full control will we see history repeat tonight and and the lakers kind of go to the same position um that remains to be seen but that's kind of what i'm expecting at this point um and you know it's it's unfortunate because i think i had well, I don't want to write the series off yet, but I think I expected a little bit more from this series in terms of entertainment value and back and forth than we've gotten so far. Um, I guess maybe the the Celtics and Raptors are setting such an impossibly high standard that everything else feels like kind of a disappointment compared to them. But, um, you know, like Rondo and Markeith Morris, you know, putting away the Rockets was not exactly the headline that I was hoping for from uh, from this particular matchup, but that's okay. Hey, Michael, let's close on a more serious note. We've obviously been tracking the player protests and the uh, the impact of that all summer long. Michael writes in, not you, to say, Today and tomorrow, university teachers across the country are taking part in a scholar strike. You can read their letter above, but this is a day where teachers are walking off virtually or in person from college campuses to say that we are not going to carry on as usual when black people are systemically killed by police. In most of the communications about the scholar strike, the NBA and WNBA are specifically mentioned as inspirations. This strike is happening because of what the Bucks and other teams did. So I'm writing to you guys for two reasons. I would like you to amplify the brave work these teachers are doing. In some states, it is illegal for teachers to walk off the job. University teachers, many of whom are adjuncts in precarious positions, are risking their livelihoods in a pandemic because they will not teach chemistry, physics, and music when their students feel unsafe around the police. This was also inspired because the Bucks transgressed. The Bucks did something that upset the status quo, and the teachers were inspired to jump in. Missing that game was mo- more important than just names on the jerseys or choreographed kneeling. NBA-approved protests doesn't necessarily inspire action from others. There's a difference between striking in the bubble and these other conversation starters. Don't get me wrong. I do think kneeling matters. It starts conversation. But striking started action. I think it's important to point out to all basketball fans so they can see the brave actions of NBA and WNBA players and and that impact they're having outside their world. CNN, for example, is writing about the teacher's strike, and it could get bigger and bigger as more people get excited and join in. So, Michael, what did you think of um, you know Michael's email here and the and the possible trickle down impacts of the Bucks strike? You know, we had talked about how you know, their action kind of changed it from a D1 sports story, you know, in the Washington Post to an A1, you know, national news story. 
And there are implications for that kind of a move. Um, Certainly their decision to not play was probably the signature moment, I would say. It's probably going to be the most memorable moment of this entire bubble experience, the biggest story that uh, the NBA has drawn headlines with. Um, Do you think that this kind of um, inspiration of other workers will continue? And what did you make of the teacher's decision that Michael laid out here? Yeah, I think that it's terrific. Um, I should say, first of all, I think that, you know, if the Milwaukee Bucks are inspiring others to behave in the same way and stand up for what they believe in and leverage the um, the power that they have um, at their jobs to draw attention to issues that they care about, then that is super awesome and really important. And we should also at the same time uh, acknowledge the risks that they have. Uh, I'm talking about the uh, the teachers who are doing this um, and uh, how strong uh, you need to be collectively to, to pull something like this off and yeah. to Let, let's just be say, successful. I mean, the max salaries and the minimum salaries for teachers are a little different than the max salaries and the minimum salaries for NBA players, right? So I think what his, his point is, even if you're a, a university professor, you might not have, you know, tenure and you know you could be in a situation where it's pretty easy for your employer to to cut to cut bait if they wanted to and that's a a gigantic risk that i don't think you know even the bucks really faced um honestly right for sure and so um you know i think that this is great (laughs) i mean I, I, you know, anytime, like I just said, anytime you're drawing attention to uh, an issue that is really important and an injustice in the world, like uh, the way that they're going about it, I think is very positive and and powerful. So for the Bucks to inspire this just kind of doubly makes what they did that much more meaningful. And, you know, it, it's you hope that as we go down the line in, in history, that the legacy of that moment will continue to see uh, similar instances as what we, we're, we're seeing with the scholarly strike. Yeah, I think what's so fascinating to me is that I really don't think the Bucks envisioned that this would happen, right? Like, I don't, I think that they were just really caught up in that particular moment of being really, really upset. They didn't feel comfortable playing the game. They felt it would just sat wrong with them. They came to the decision in the hours before uh, not playing about what they were going to do. I think they were even caught off guard by the immediate reaction in terms of the other athletes joining them around different sports. And I imagine... Can I, can I, can I cut you off really quickly? Like, yes, do please. you act... Do, I mean, I know you just said that you think that, but do you really... like? I know that it came together so fast and George Hill basically was just like, I'm not playing. And then Sterling Brown's like, I'm not playing. And then it's snowballs. But how do you not know... I mean, these are all smart guys. How do they not know that this is going to be like a wildly impactful, influential, um, noteworthy, newsworthy move? I just don't. I don't believe well, that. It's 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 impro- no, unprecedented, and they know that. No, I think that they knew that it never had been done before. But you don't know how everyone's going to respond. You could never predict that, right? And I think sure, that in sure, their sure. mind, like. We know that they didn't give a courtesy heads up to the other teams that were scheduled to play. So probably in their minds, they're thinking those other games are going to go on. I think that they were probably thinking, well, hey, we'll just forfeit this game and then we'll pick up the rest of our series on down the road, right? Um, I'm not sure that they gave thought that like, you know, AOC and Trump and all these people are going to be weighing in instantly to the decision or that 
you know, the media from all around the world is going to treat this as the number one story, not just sports story, um, because they've got a lot going on here. Look, they're they're uh, isolated from the rest of the outside world. They're living day by day, hour by hour in the bubble. Um, it, it definitely warps your perspective of how things will be, you know, received uh, from everyone else. They're cut off from even their own direct family members, so it's not like they could even just run this by somebody on a heart-to-heart conversation, right? Uh, you know, y- you could use FaceTime to do that, I guess, the night before, but you're not still in the same kind of a perspective-building moment that you would be if you weren't in the bubble. I'm not saying that they they didn't believe there was going to be a reaction. But to me, to have the size and scope of the reaction and the instantaneous reaction with all the other athletes joining in, followed by now, uh, you know, this teacher's movement, I just, I think if you, you know, told George Hill, like, do you think that there's going to be all these college professors just not showing up to work because you decided you didn't want to play following Jacob Blake's shooting? I'm pretty sure he would be like, no, I didn't see that coming. And how could he? I, I didn't see it coming. Did you? Uh... Not necessarily, no. I mean, your point is is well taken, no. So, I mean, I think that actually makes it even more interesting because it turns this whole thing into like an organic movement, an organic protest. And I think when you look back at the history from the 60s, wouldn't you say that's kind of how a lot of it unfolded, right? Um, when you're talking about, you know, bus boycotts and, you know, Rosa Parks, it's like, you know, at some point, these were not like crazy calculated months in advance decisions. Like you take an action, you see what the reaction is, and then you push forward with the next action. Um, I, I think it just puts the NBA players, um, you know, in a leadership position for sure. It, it definitely solidifies their their sta- uh, stance there, and it gives them a takeaway uh, as well. And they've been looking for that, by the way. You know, we've we've heard from players and coaches, how can we make a difference? Don't you? Wouldn't you agree that this is kind of? Um, you know, evidence that they've they've uh, left a mark. Oh, without question. Um, and uh, I think in the the you know not to go down a rabbit hole, but in the conversation about like how they leverage your platform, um, you know, they've done a lot of really good things. But this, you know, in twenty years, uh, are we really going to remember the? Uh, slogans on the back of the jerseys uh, or are we going to remember the fact that the Milwaukee Bucks staged a boycott like I think that that is way more powerful uh, not necessarily to compare the two but uh, even though I just did no um, compare the two I think you're dead right like yeah absolutely and I think that's Michael the emailer's point too here right yeah I think that that is for sure um, what Michael the emailer was was trying to convey and uh, again it's just it's it's an awesome thing that they did and I hope that we kind of keep building from here I'm right there with you all right Michael we have reached the end of another episode of open floor guys let us know what you think about uh, the Rockets melting down the Celtics melting down the amazing leadership shown by the Bucks players um openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com we will be back early next week to pick up the pieces on raptors celtics and uh, preview the eastern conference finals and possibly the western conference finals if we have answers in those series as well michael we are hitting the home stretch here of the bubble playoffs the games are ramping up in intensity and we're, we're narrowing the field almost day by day guys check us out on apple Podcasts by searching for open floor that's two words when you find our page scroll down It will say rate and review, tap five stars and leave us some kind words. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Now, Michael's on Twitter and Instagram 
at Michael V as in Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver, on Twitter at Ben Golliver. Check out my Washington Post newsletter. You can sign up for that um, on my uh, Twitter page. There's a link there. Michael, anything you want to plug here that you've been writing? It feels like you're pumping out, what, two, three pieces a day? You're a machine. So actually, uh, I guess hopefully this goes up. Our episode goes up today on Thursday. But I just wrote a piece that should be published within like the next 10 minutes um, where I talked to the last uh, Rondo superfan alive, who is not me. Um and uh, that's a, that was a really fun conversation. And uh, so go check that out at GQ. <clears throat> I have to imagine if the Rockets go down at the hand of Rondo, that's like the only possible way you're going to be able to kind of, uh, you know, make sense of your, your lost prediction. Am I right? Like, is this the only possible way you'd actually be happy if Houston loses? If playoff Rondo is a thing consistently, um <clears throat> the fact that he plays for the Lakers is just like a real dual-edged sword in my heart <laughs> that I can't ever reconcile. So it's all it's all really tough, and it's an emotional paradox that I can't really um, come to grips with, to be honest with you. Your favorite player of all time on your least favorite team, possibly taking down your favorite team in the finals. <laughs> Can you imagine if the Lakers beat the Celtics, Michael? How wait, many wait, conflicted feelings? Just, okay, <laughs> just stop right there. We're not going there. We're not going there. All right. End of the podcast, guys. Thanks for listening. Hey, Michael, until next week, I'll talk to you. Talk to you again. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. What are you looking for in a new smart TV? 4K picture quality? High quality and immersive sound? A sleek design? All of those are givens, but only the new Roku Pro Series has all of those and the Roku Streaming Experience, an award-winning OS. Get fast, easy access to all your apps like iHeart, where you can stream all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts all day, and regular all-inclusive trips to Roku City. The new Roku Pro Series, a smart TV built by the streaming pros. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. When we come together, it's magic. And for 30 years, we've celebrated that because our ideas, our art, our flavor, our community, our impact, there's nothing like it here in this place. This is where we fall more in love with everything that makes us, us. This is the place where we love us. Celebrate 30 years of loving us at Essence Festival. Get your tickets at EssenceFestival.com.